If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to Matthew uh, chapter 27. And um, as we look at Matthew chapter 27, I, I can guess what maybe some of you are thinking this morning, possibly. It's December, and most churches, uh, I mean, look at ours, right? We've got it decorated with all the Christmas regalia. And you might be thinking, hey, pastor, you're supposed to be talking about the birth of Jesus. And, I, and I'm going to tell you that I, I think the birth of Jesus finds its fulfillment and its significance in what we're going to talk about today. And so, rest assured, I'm not going to neglect the birth of Jesus over this December, but I do want for you to understand that over the next several weeks, we're going to walk through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so while December and Christmas have very much to do with the birth of Jesus, and of course for us, if we're honest, with, with gifts, I want to take you through what is the ultimate gift, the ultimate purchase, the ultimate sacrifice. So as we think of the reason for the season, and I don't mean to be crass, but there are a lot of babies born all the time, isn't there? Uh, all over the globe. And it's this one baby born thousands of years ago that we celebrate, and it's this one baby's birth that we celebrate because, unfortunately, of this man's death. And so if you have your finger there in Matthew 27, as we talk about this king, as we talk about the gifts that the wise men brought to him, I want to take you to where it all began. And so I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where it says, She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then, as we move a little forward, verse 23 Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So not just a son named Jesus, but also God in the flesh. And then again, as you go a little farther in Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then just a little farther. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Hey, you guys click back there if I'm off. In fact, I'm just going to let you click. So here's the presents that they gave. They gave gold, frankincense, or incense, and myrrh. And as you go through the Advent season, you may have, if you spent time in churches or if you grew up there, if you've heard sermons on this before, we've heard people talk about these things. And in case you haven't, Gold, representing his kingship. Incense, because he is a priest, and that's what they would uh, burn on the altar and in the altar. And if you've ever come out of a Catholic tradition or you've been to a Catholic church, you'll see sometimes the priest with the censer kind of walking up and down the aisle, swinging that. And myrrh. This is this special aloe, special ointment that would be given to folks to prepare their bodies for burial. I know it's kind of morbid sounding, but it's this idea of embalming. Not quite the same process, but that's the reason that they 
gave these things. And so scholars throughout the ages have pointed to these gifts on this day, these wise men from the East who weren't even Jews, who came there and gave these three gifts. And so we assume there's three wise men. By the way, the Bible doesn't tell us that. But there's three gifts that are mentioned here, the gold, incense, and myrrh. And it's all pointing to who Jesus is. And if you remember the text that we also just read, Jesus, his name Emmanuel, he's come to bear their sins. Um, They are worshiping him as king of the Jews. And so that brings us to the very text that we're going to actually spend our time looking at this morning. And before we get into that, if you would, please join with me in prayer. Dearest Lord Jesus, as we prepare to celebrate the season of your birth, help us not to forget why it is that you were born. As we seek to give generously to our loved ones, let us not forget the generosity of our King. Father, as we look to your word recorded by Matthew, we ask that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive that which you would give us today. Help us, we pray, by your divine helper, the Holy Spirit, that by the Spirit that penned these words, let that same Spirit touch our hearts to receive them. It is in your name we pray. Amen. So I told you to go to Matthew 27. Hopefully you did that. Uh, The guys in the back are going to help me work through this, but I want to read with you and kind of give you a commentary as we read through before we get into some of the application and the exposition of of the main verse that I want to spend some time on. So in verse 32, this is after the uh, flogging and and Pilate's confliction over whether he should send this man to his death or not. He unfortunately washes his hand of the situation. We talked about that last week. And so as they went out in verse 32, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And I just want to say a few things about this. This text could be preached in so many different ways. There's so many sermons popping throughout here. And and so as we go through, I'm going to give you some that we're not going to cover to get to the one that I want to cover. How's that? Is that okay? And so this first one is this. Can you even imagine Simon's plight? I mean, this guy's, I, I, I picture this this way. This guy's just on his way home from work. You know, he's, he's got his briefcase full of tools because it's, it's probably more menial label then. And so he's, he's got his little briefcase full of tools on his way home. And he's stopped by these Roman soldiers. And he says, hey, hey, you, uh, carry this cross for this man. And I have to imagine, because I'm human, and I believe that this man is human too that he thought to himself, I don't have time for this. I've got a wife or kids at home, possibly, that I'm, I'm waiting to get home. Or, or, or let's just be honest, guys. After work, what do you want to do when you come home? Work some more, right? <laughs> That's what I want to do when I get home. I'm sure you're the same, right? And so after work, this man, he's, 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 he's coming this way, and he's called out of the crowd, and it says here that he is compelled to carry Jesus' cross. Here's the sermon. I I wonder if you feel the same way. And there's two different kinds of compulsion that we can feel here. There's one kind that I believe Simon felt at the beginning, and then there's another kind that I think probably Simon feels later. I wish I had wrote the text down. You'll have to Google it and find it yourself. But there's a man later, I believe his name is Rufus, who's the son of Simon. Simon. In the New Testament, they pen about this. 
the first kind of compulsion he might feel is, I hope not the kind of compulsion you feel, but some of us struggle with that. And it's the compulsion of, hey, I need to go to church because that's what we do. That's what grandma did. That's what mom and dad did. And so that's what I need to do. So coming to church and refilling your religious duty is a compulsion. You feel compelled to be here or you feel compelled to come to candlelight service or you'll compelled to come to Easter or to Christmas because that's what, right, air quotes, Christians do. That's what religious people do. And so at one point, there's a compulsion that Simon has here. This is not something he was looking forward to. This is not something he wanted to do. But then I think there's a second kind of compulsion here. And I think it's the kind of compulsion that Simon will later experience, and I hope and I pray it's the kind of compulsion you feel, and that is this. Jesus said, if you love me, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and come after me. And I hope that that's why you're here. I hope that that's why you believe what you believe. I, I hope that your heart has been so touched by the word of God that you have given yourself over to him wholeheartedly, completely, and you find it actually your joy to have your name written in the book of life as one that would carry the cross of Christ just like Simon does here. And I pray that it would change not only you, but your family generationally, as it seems to do here for Simon. Next verse, verse 33, it says, And and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, and you can understand why it would be called that. Now, uh, the the physicality of it lends itself to this, right? It is a busted up rocky hill that actually might appear that way. But the second reason is, is very clear from the text. This is where criminals and where persecutors of Rome, this is where their, their um, enemies were crucified and were taken care of. And it was very public. As you will see in the text, people would walk by this space. And so it would do multiple things here, right? It would, it would punish the criminals, but it would also be a literal signpost to those who might think about raising up against Rome in the future. And so as they were going to this place called Golgotha, means the place of the skull. Verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So why was that? Was it because Jesus didn't like wine? No, he turned water into wine at a party, right? And he had wine with the disciples. And we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper that is the remembration of that in just a little while. No, I didn't forget. Hold on to your cups, okay? And so they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And I think that's the reason for it. Commentators don't know for sure, but one of the things that they think is that this, this mixture was probably an uh, old century narcotic, if you will. They believe that what this mixture was was actually supposed to help deaden the pain and the senses of those who were being crucified. This was the one act of mercy that the Roman empires would give the, these criminals. And I think even this was on a case-by-case basis. And so since some there believed that Jesus might be innocent, they offered it to him. And so why didn't he take this? Well, I, I believe it's because Jesus understood that for his sacrifice to be complete, he had to suffer completely. I believe that Jesus understood that if he didn't have his wits about him, that if he didn't have his body in order, that if he wasn't under control of his faculties on there, then he could not have said at the end what he did is yielding up his spirit. He couldn't have taken the full brunt of God's wrath, the full brunt of our punishment, 
if he wasn't fully there. Does that make sense? And so they offer him this drink. He does not drink it. As soon as he tasted it, he knew what it was, and so he pushed it aside. Here's another sermon for you. Do you expect Jesus to bring you a drink that he wouldn't drink for himself? I mean, do do you expect to face trials and tribulations and have somehow because you believe in Jesus that you are no longer going to go through them or they're not going to be as deep or they're not going to be as, as hard as they are for the pagans out there? Because I believe that I have lived this out. I believe some of you are currently living this out that God does not necessarily always shield us from these pains of these trials and these tribulations, but what he does do is he gives us the strength to go through them just like Jesus has here. And so I just want to caution you that if you're new to this whole church thing, you're new to this whole Christian thing, or, or, or if you've been doing it for a while and you've just got your heart struck by the word of God as he offers us this truth that we ought not to expect the dulling of these things. I believe that's a rose-colored goggles. That's, that's a false view of what God allows or ordains. And does that happen sometimes? Yes. Absolutely. Perhaps in your life you have seen people go through trials or tribulations or medical procedures and all kinds of things. You're like, how did this person even make it through with the way that they made it through? And, and you might think that what happened there is they had wine mixed with gull and so their senses were dulled. And what I would say is, no, no, no. What they experienced was a better drink. It was the fullness of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So verse 35 says, and, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now, uh, this is uh, not something we currently do, obviously, um, but the way that this kind of plays out is if you've ever played dice, and maybe some of you have, um, if you've played dice, you understand that this is kind of a gambling game. Uh, we, we try to dumb it down in other ways. Uh, a specific dice game. The kind, I'm talking about back alley ice. I'm not talking about Yahtzee, okay? There's two different kinds of dice games. Uh, but here's what they're doing is they're playing this kind of paper, rock, scissors. Maybe that's a better way to think through this. They're playing those paper, rock, scissors, casting lots for who will actually receive these things. Other ones of the Gospels. And by the way, you can find this narrative in all the other Gospels. I I would encourage you on your own to read through this, especially after today. Um, They're casting these lots to see who's going to get what. And this was common. This wasn't just what they did for Jesus. This is what they did for all these prisoners. Because to be crass, what do they need the clothes for now anyway? Number one. Number two, to strip them of their clothes was only to add to their punishment and their anguish and their humiliation before the crowds that would walk by on this road. So two birds, one stone, so to speak, from a Roman perspective. And then thirdly, this was a, if you can believe it or not, this was a perk for the Roman soldiers because they could then take these clothes and either use them, maybe they'd give them as presents, I don't know, the idea of re-gifting, or they would sell them at the marketplace. Verse 36, they sat down and kept watch over him there. So then after they were done with that business, they just watched the prisoners die. They had to stay there and guard the prisoners for multiple reasons. One, uh, since it was such a public location, since it would take sometimes days for these criminals to perish because of the agonizing torture that they would go through, they had to make sure that people didn't sneak in and try to free them or release them. 
And, as we will see in the text here, they also had the unfortunate duty of, or mercy, if you think about it, of breaking the legs of the criminal so then they would expire more quickly. And so for both reasons, they had to sit there and watch. Sermon. How often do we sit by casting lots over something that we should actually be stepping in and ending? Are you doing more than just sitting and watching as others perish before you? Now, these Roman soldiers had a job. This was their job. But then the same could be true of you. If you're a Christian, you have a job. And your job is to share this good news with anyone and everyone you come in contact with, however that might be the case. Because if we truly believe, if we really believe that everyone in this room one day is going to have judgment wrought upon them, not only in this room, but everybody in your families, everybody you've ever met, the people you drive past on the highway going to work, if you really believe that, and you really believe that there is a place called hell where people will go for all of eternity to suffer. And if you really believe that there is a free gift that has been wrought to others, and yet we sit watching, playing paper, rock, scissors to see who's going to be the unlucky one who has to witness. Thirty-seven. And over his head... This is where, by the way, this is where his birth and the crucifixion and the Christmas season find its culmination. And over his head, they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Often, they would put charges over the criminals. They would wear a placard around their neck as they carried their cross through the towns, Or if they were being crucified, they would do this. This was common practice. Why might they do that, you wonder? Well, if you were walking on a road and you saw somebody being crucified on a tree, you would probably be interested in what in the world got this person there. And they would have a placard above them saying, like, this this person usurped the Roman government, or this person killed a Roman citizen, or this person claims to be the king, and we all know there is no king but Caesar, according to the Jews who said that during the time that Jesus was on trial. And so they posted this above Christ, but is this not exactly what the wise men from the east came to worship Jesus for? Is this not exactly what the Bible in its entirety claims who Jesus is? And so there's irony here. There's deep irony, and I hope that this is not lost on you, that this God King, this sinless Savior, is now mounted on a cross in between criminals with his main charge, the reason for his death, the crime that he commits against humanity is. He's the king of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. They shook their heads, you know. You can, you can almost picture them. You can, you can almost picture these citizens, good citizens of the empire, you know, a lot like us, 
who, who were walking past, probably a lot of them Jewish because they're in Jerusalem and they're, they're on their way to celebrate this feast. And so there are lots of people going to and from. It's a bustling center. This is in the early morning. Remember, this took all night. They went early in the morning. So this is probably around noon, midday, where Jesus is now up there. So everybody's up at this point. And everybody's walking around, preparing and going and getting things ready. And they're walking to and fro past the road. And you can hear their tisk tisk. You can hear the sons. Why is these people here, Daddy? And you can hear the father say, well, let's read what's over his cross, son. And you can see what they say about him. They say, this is the guy who said he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And, and, and if you forget, in context, let me remind you, that this, is, this is not what Jesus even said. What he said was, if you destroy this temple, then I'll raise it up in three days. And then the scribes and the Pharisees said, what are you talking about? It took, it took a generation to build this thing. You're crazy. And then in the, in the text it says, but Jesus was speaking about his body. Sermon. Sometimes we think we understand God's word and we hold him accountable to promises that he actually never made us. And sometimes we use God's word as a weapon against him. God, your word says X. I read it there. I know that it says that, so therefore, get me out of this. Jesus, you said that. You proclaimed that. I read that, and so therefore, you have to act. I'm going to give you probably one of the most famous ones that I can think of that uh, is a misuse of Scripture, and it's train a child up in the way they should go, and when they get older, they will not depart from that. And it's like, man, um, I'm just here to tell you, I know some very, very godly people who have had children who have been raised up in the way of the Lord, and they are out to lunch. And it has nothing to do with the way that those parents raised that child. And then we would sit here and say, well, it must be. It must be. Because the word of God says, raise them up, and they won't depart from that. This is what they're saying here. These people are misunderstanding these generalized... Now, is that a general promise? Absolutely. Is this a specific promise? Absolutely. And we're going to see in three days, this is exactly what he does. But these folks who don't understand, who don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or who haven't had the teaching and the education by Christ to have the inside track so he could say, hey, what are you talking about here? And aren't you glad that the disciples were like you and I and they had to do that too? And so they had the opportunity to ask him, but these people don't. And so they don't believe they're going by and they're wagging their heads saying, you're a fool. You said that you would rebuild the temple in three days. If that's the case, then save yourself. And they go so far as to say, if you are the Son of God, then come down off the cross. But the very fact that he is the Son of God is what keeps him on the cross. Don't be deceived. It is not the nails that keep him on the cross. It is his love for you and his love for myself. It is his love for humanity that keeps him on the cross. 
And so it is the very fact that he is the Son of God, which is the reason he does not come down from the cross. Uh, John Piper talks about this text, and, and what he says is, is there, there, Jesus, this whole time, come down from the cross, it's as if this man has an atom bomb walking around in his pocket and still neglects to drop it on anyone around him, although they are deserving and he has the authority to do so. Now that's how John Piper, who's a a genius puts it, I put it like Aladdin and the genie. You know? Infinite power of the universe. Itty bitty living space, right? And so this is who Jesus is. He has all the power of the universe, and yet he uses that power to keep himself on the cross, to pay for the penalty of your sin. So also the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself in the act, Jesus is dying for them. In the act, in other Gospels, we have recorded Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the act of being scorned, in the very act of taking the wrath of God, he saved others. He cannot save himself. I'm going to say he is saving others and instead would not save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Last sermon before we get to the one we're here for. Come down from the cross and we will believe him? No, you won't. And so I want to ask you, if, if you're dabbling, if, if you're just here visiting because somebody asked you to come and you're not sure about this whole church thing or about Jesus, I just want to ask you, what would it take for you to believe? I mean, honest question. No jerkiness on my part. What would it take for you to believe? Would it take seeing somebody come back from the dead? Would it take less than that? Here's what scripture tells us, and, and then this is why this is a dangerous question for me to ask you and for you to think through this morning. There's a story in the Bible. The title of it is The Rich Man and Lazarus. The whole synopsis of this story goes something like this. There, there's a poor man who kind of hangs out at the gates of this rich man. This rich man sees the poor man all the time, doesn't care a lick for him, okay? Just goes about his own business, um, lives, lives the life that, you know, he earned, right? Air quotes. And so at the end of all this, both of these men die. Um, the poor man goes to heaven. The rich man goes to hell. Now, I, there's nothing wrong with, with being rich and... Uh, that's not what the text is about. The text is about the rich man's heart and how he doesn't care for his brother. Uh, not his real brother, but, you know, the guy. And so the one who's in heaven is comforted and is given all these good things, and he is healthy, and he is, he is well now and, and uh, uh, at peace. And the man who's in hell is in torment all the time. And he says, hey, send this guy here to give me some water. And they said, no, 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 we can't do that. There's a gap between us. And he says, okay, if we can't do that, then send somebody to tell my siblings who are still alive. Send somebody to tell them. Send somebody back from the dead so that they would know. And in the text, Jesus says it. And what he says is, hey, listen, you have the Bible. Now, I'm paraphrasing what Jesus said. What he said was you have Moses and the prophets. What he's talking about is the Old Testament. So in that narrative, what Jesus says is, hey, listen, 
you have God's word right here. If you will not believe based on what you read or what is taught or what the word of God says, the truth is he could come down from the cross and they would not believe in him. And here's the danger, friend. If this is you this morning, if, if, if you're the one who's here and I'm talking to you, and I, and, and I don't know all of you, I don't know where everybody's at, but I never assume that every single person who comes to church is always saved. And so I would ask you the question, if that's you, if, if you're here because your, your spouse has made you come or a family member or a friend has made you come and you're not sure about this whole thing and, and you're not sure that this is true or that you want to believe that or whatever, I, just here's the question for you. What would it take to have you believe it? Matthew 27, verse 43. With a a minute left, this is the text I really wanted to spend on. Matthew 27, 43 says, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. As you look at this, I want to take you through here bit by bit. And so put on your ears because I'm going to be speaking quickly. Firstly, I want you to see the wickedness of the human condition. Again, that we would mock our Savior who trusts in God. But realize, he's not just our Savior, he's also our model, isn't he? And I think that's a lot of times what people have the problem with Christianity. They say, hey, I love your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians. This is our model. This is our example. Look what he says here about them. And rest assured, Jesus does trust in God. Firstly, I want to point out that this man himself attests to it. Jesus himself attests that he trusts in God. He made much of God. His entire ministry was, let's give glory to the Father. Let's obey the Father. I'm here to serve the Father. I'm here to submit to the Father. I'm here to show you who the Father is. I'm not here for my own glory. I'm here for his glory. That's the entire process of what Jesus was here doing. He attested of it himself. His disciples attest of it. Where else should we go, Lord? For you are God. Thomas, my Lord and my God. Surely you are the Son of God. Who do people say I am? They say all these other things. Who do you say I am? I say you are God. But more than that, the public attest it. And even more than that, his enemies attest it. Who's mocking him here? It's those who don't believe. Brother or sister, do those who don't believe, do they look at your life and say, hey, I might not, but I can tell you who does. Insert your name here. He trusts in God. I think so many of us, we trust in God when things are good, but then the minute things go south, we lack trust in God. And I'm in that boat too. I pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. But here it says, Jesus trusts in God. I also want to show you that Jesus does this personally. It's his trust in God. It's not his trust in the church. It's not his trust in his friends. It's not his trust in any kind of religious organization. In fact, he goes in and flips over tables. Please don't do that here, okay? But what I'm saying is he trusts in God, not in man-made structures. It's personal with him. 
And that's why it doesn't matter if you're a part of Allegan Bible Church. If you don't know Jesus, you're not saved. I don't care where you're from. I don't care where you go to church. None of that matters. If you don't know God, you're not saved. He trusts in God. And then the next part of that. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. I don't know about you, there's things that I focus on and I got to read things over and over to focus on other parts. So I focus first on let God deliver him, of course, right? Then I focus on if he desires him and I think, man, how could God not desire him? And I gloss over the word now. Brother or sister, how many times do we say, do it now? And that's the way that this text is. In the Greek, let God deliver him now. And so we look at these things, we look at our own lives, and they look at this man who's on the cross, and they say, hey, you say you believe in God, you say you're the Son of God. If that is true, let's have him do it now. Let's see your power now. Sometimes we struggle with that, don't we? We say things like, hey, I believe in God. I want to walk with God. I believe that I'm a, a, a Christian that's following God. And then this thing happens. I say, God, why are you doing this? Deliver me right now. But rest assured, God will deliver you as he delivers Christ. And by the way, if God chooses in his divine sovereignty to deliver us the same way he delivers Christ, should we be upset with that? How did he deliver Christ? He let Christ suffer and die. And then the tomb was empty. And then he lived again. And then he ascended to his glory. And so we have to see the difference here because as we see it from a man's perspective as they do, they say, let God deliver you now if he desires you. Not understanding the glory of the gospel that is If God delivers him now, it's not that he doesn't desire Christ. It's that he doesn't desire you. Do you understand that? That if he were to deliver Jesus in the way these people want, what they're saying is, choose him over us. If he would have been brought down from that cross, none of us have any hope. None of us have any peace. None of us have any justice. We confuse human deliverance with godly deliverance. We confuse what we desire and who God desires with, I'm sorry, we confuse what we desire with what God desires. So I want to offer to you this morning as we end here. Jesus trusts in God. Jesus trusts in God that God would be faithful to his promise that he made to him that his sacrifice would be enough for you. And as they said, let God deliver him now if he desires him. What you need to understand is that the reason that that happened is really because God desired you. And so I'm going to use the way that they use that now and I'm going to place it on your shoulders and I'm going to say this. Will you be delivered now? I mean, right now. I don't know what it is that you're dealing with, and the deliverance that I'm talking about is not one of physicality. I'm talking one of supernatural power, and that is on the table for you right now. 
Will you have your misuse of finances delivered right now? Will you have your gluttony or your hypocrisy or your adultery or your pornography or your alcoholism or your uh, anger or your self-harm or your self-doubt or your spouse, whatever? Like, will you have those things delivered right now? Because in the power of Christ Jesus, you can have that supernatural deliverance right now. And at the same time, you can trust that now and then future tense. Because Jesus said, for I am the son of God. And even his enemies attest it. And he has shown it. And his scriptures magnify it. And so I would simply tell you this, that if you believe who he is, then you are sealed, you are saved, and there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that this world can do to you that he cannot restore. There's nothing that it can take away that he cannot bring back. That all things find their yes in him. Eventually. And over his head, they put the charge against him. And this was the charge. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. So the thing is, those wise men were wise men not because of anything other than they saw the star which was raised up and went toward the Christ to worship. Whereas we have seen the Christ raised up on the cross, will we also be wise and move towards him to worship? Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Christmas season. We praise you that it is by your blood that we were bought. We thank you for the remembrance that Christmas, although it is about a beautiful, squishy baby, it is also about a bloody, bruised, beaten Savior. That the gift that you have given us in your Son starts at the cross, not the manger. That the gift you have given us actually starts in the garden after the fall, finding its fruition in Christ. So we thank you that he lived a perfect life. And we thank you that he died his miserable death so that he could be the first fruits of all those who you desire. Thank you for desiring us. God, as we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed as we offer up prayers to you, I I would like to say a special prayer. So for anyone who's here this morning who may be battling with their trust in God, who might be wondering if God will deliver them, who might not be sure what it would take for them to believe, I would offer for you to pray along with me, God, our Father in heaven, you see my heart and my struggle. You see my pain and my suffering. You see my doubt and my fear. But God, I believe that your word is true. And so I would ask, just as that other did, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Pour your spirit out upon me that I might accept and experience the things of your word, the things of your truth. God, I pray as they taunted that you might deliver me now. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So here's what I'd like to do.
if you have a uh, gift of communion, that we can uh, collectively remember what it means to be a member of your kingdom. And we praise you that you have said that you yourself will fast from this meal until the day that you have your beautiful bride with you, where we can eat and drink with you in heaven for all of eternity. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's